Well, please take up your Bibles once again and turn with me uh, back to the book of Genesis and chapter 50. Uh, and those verses from verse 15 to the end of the chapter. And as I said, God willing, uh, we will complete our long-running series uh, in the book of Genesis this morning. Uh, According to my count, this will be the 94th message on on the book of Genesis, which um, I began preaching on when I first came. I know we've taken uh, a few breaks from it uh, over the years. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, when uh, when Pastor Ian was here with us, uh, I wasn't preaching quite so regularly. So we've come to the end of it a little bit quicker uh, than we got through the first part of it. But we come this evening, this morning rather, uh, to look at the ending of this great and foundational book of, of Scripture. And I'm going to begin this morning as we consider these words uh, by borrowing an illustration from somebody. Uh, This illustration I read just this week in a book that I'm reading called Gentle and Lowly uh, by a man called Dane Ortland. It's a a great book uh, about the the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ for sinners. Uh, And I really encourage you, if you haven't read it, if you don't have it, uh, then please do look out for it uh, and read it. It's it's been a, a real balm to my soul in these past weeks. So uh, this is the the illustration that he uses. Uh, He says this, picture a 12-year-old boy growing up in a a healthy, uh, loving family. And as he matures through no fault uh, of his parents or even of of his own, he he finds himself trying to, to reassure himself of his place in the family. Well, maybe you've been there, maybe you've had that experience. Uh, as you've grown up, you've, uh, you've been in a family, you've been in a, even in a group of friends where you've not been convinced that you really have a, a place among them. One week the boy tries to create a new birth certificate, takes paper and pens and, uh, and creates a, a birth certificate for himself to prove that he's part of the family. The next week he does everything that he can to, to copy what his father does. One day his parents confront him about his strange behaviour and, uh, and he says to them, I'm just doing everything I can to, to secure my place in this family. I just want so much to be part of this family. How do you think the father, the parents would respond with these words? Calm yourself, my son, my dear son. There is nothing, nothing you can do to earn your place among us. Nothing you can do to earn your place in this family. You are our son. You did nothing at the start to to get into our family. You can't do anything to get out of our family. So live your life knowing that your sonship is settled and irreversible. Sometimes the gospel, the grace of God in the gospel, seems impossible to us. I don't know about you, but I've had that experience. Sometimes it just seems impossible, more than implausible. 
How could a holy, just and righteous God show such compassion, such grace, such mercy and such love to a sinner like me? And the temptation which follows those thoughts is to try to to do something, to earn his approval, to earn his attention, to earn that love. But we never can. No one can ever be good enough to earn his favour. Nor can we deceive him into letting us into his affections. We know this. We know these things. We know this doctrine. We know this truth. We know that salvation is by his free grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we have in our hearts a chronic and insidious tendency to to function out of a, a very subtle belief that God could not possibly love us. And that our obedience, our work, actually strengthens his love for us. That we need to somehow manipulate him into into showing us the grace and the love that the Bible speaks of. But we know these things. We know them in our head, but we may even know them in our heart. But how does it work out in practice? For believers, for those who are in Christ, for those who are redeemed by the atoning power of the blood of Jesus Christ, we are already in his family. Sons and daughters of the living God. Not through our merit, but through Christ's. And nothing can ever take away what he has done. It is done, it is finished. It cannot be undone. His atoning sacrifice eternally stands. And that is the teaching of Galatians. That's why I read that passage from Galatians chapter 3 about justification by faith, about the law, about being sons and heirs. Because those things are ours in him. Listen to this from Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Not because of anything I did, not because of anything I will do, not because of anything I could do, but because of his love. And as we come to look this morning at the final words of the book of Genesis, it is this message that we're left with, the message of a chosen family. And some unfulfilled promises. First of all then, considering the first part of the passage before us. Genesis 50 verses 15 to 21. uh, uh, And uh, under the heading, a chosen family. And the first aspect of this message picks up just where we left off last Sunday morning. With the death of Jacob. And with their father dead, Joseph's brothers are fearful that Joseph will now take his revenge upon them. 
But the only thing stopping him from doing that was his father. And now his father is gone, he's going to come after them for all the things that they have done wrong to him. For everything that it cost him to be cast out of that family and sold as a slave. For all of the hardships and troubles that he's been through. Through all of the grief and the suffering, through all of those years as a slave and then later in prison. He's going to take vengeance upon them. And they deserve it. Joseph is now in, a, in, in an exalted position. He's in a sovereign position. Second only to Pharaoh in the great land of Egypt. It is within his power to do to them whatever he desires. To them and their families. He could have them cast out of the land. He could have them all put to death. He could have them sold into slavery just as they once did to him. So to allay their fears, the brothers come up with a plan and they send messengers to Joseph with a command. It's a very strong word in verse 16. Your father, before your father died, he commanded. These words supposedly spoken by Jacob in verse 17. Say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin. I suppose on the plus side, the brothers acknowledge their sin. They know they've done wrong. And they're fearful of retribution. There's nothing they can do to make up for what they've done. They can't put it right. They can't change things. What can they give to Joseph that he hasn't already got? Nothing. So they acknowledge their sin, they seek forgiveness, but unfortunately they do so in a way, um, in a scheming way, which is kind of like their father. Remember how scheming and how, how, how much Jacob plotted, how he, um, how he plotted and schemed to get the, the, the blessing from his father? Well, here again, it runs in the family, doesn't it? There's no indication that Jacob ever said the words that they claim he did in verse 17. And I think it would probably be out of character for him to do so. For a man who always thought the best of his favoured son, the best of Joseph, I can't imagine him thinking for a moment that his son, his beloved son, Joseph, would take vengeance upon his son's. Upon, his, upon Joseph's brothers. They try to manipulate Joseph with, uh, with the supposed words of his recently deceased father. Oh, they reveal, don't they, the, the mistrust of his intentions towards them. They're struggling to understand how or why Joseph could let everything that has gone on in the past, everything that's gone on between them, all of his suffering... How can he just let it go? When they apparently are still racked with the guilt of their wickedness. And they know how their own hearts would act if they were in his position. 
It's so hard sometimes to accept free forgiveness and free grace because as Christians we know that the guilt of the wicked is upon us. We are sinners and we know, we understand that we are guilty. And often we find the further we go on in the faith, the further we go on with the Lord's, the more sinful we see ourselves as, the worse we see ourselves as, the more wicked we see ourselves as. And that guilt is upon us, that guilt is in our hearts. But in Christ there is free forgiveness, in Christ there is grace, and we cannot earn grace, for grace is free in Christ. Now when Joseph hears the words from the messengers in verse 17, he breaks down. His eyes well up with tears. Does he realise the message is a lie? Does he realise they're trying to manipulate him? That's not clear from the text but in the bigger picture that's really unimportant his brothers you see they come before him and they they throw themselves down at his feet they throw themselves on his mercy it's the third time they've come and bowed before him which is incredible when the reason they threw him out of the family was because of his dreams where he that he had where they all were coming to bow down before him here yet again is a reminder of, uh, of God's, God's promises being fulfilled. God gave this promise, this, this prophecy to Joseph. And here it is being fulfilled once again in his sight. As his brothers come and bow the knee before him. And as they come, the reason for his emotion becomes clear because he never intended them or their families any harm. They are his brothers, they are his family, they are his blood. They are the sons of Israel. And instead of vengeance, instead of hatred, instead of wrath, There is comfort and there is compassion upon the lips of God's anointed, upon the lips of Joseph. And it flows from a place which is the the apex, really the pinnacle of Old Testament faith and New Testament faith. Look at Joseph's response to them in verses 19 to 21 what does he say first he says do not be afraid you have no need to fear you have no need to fear why why do you have no need to fear what does he say am i in the place of god joseph has learned over the years through his sufferings to leave The writing of wrongs to God. To leave room for the Lord. 
to remember that it is his to take vengeance or to give grace. And so he says to them, am I in the place of God? Should I be the one to judge you? No. The answer is sort of implicit there. It's a rhetorical question. Am I in the place of God? Of course not. Joseph may be a, a type, a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, but he is not in the place of God. He recognises and realises that. It is not for him to judge. What does he say next in verse 20? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. And this is the verse, this is the, the phrase that we keep coming, we've kept coming back to as we've gone through the, the story of the life of Joseph. Because this is the place he comes to after all he's experienced, after all his suffering. In slavery, in prison, being rejected by his own family. Seeing the grace of God at work in the lives of his brothers and in his own life. He comes to this conclusion, God meant it for good. You might have meant it for evil. You might have hated me. And that's why you did what you did, he says. But God, God meant it for good. And which of these is more important? Which of these is more vital at the end of the day? Which of these has the controlling influence on the world? Your evil or God's good? Well, again, the answer is rhetorical, isn't it? It is God who is in control. And jo Joseph sees God's providence even in man's malice. What does he say next? Verse 21. Do not be afraid. He says again, do not be afraid. I, even I, will provide for you and your little ones. And so he repays the evil that he received from his brothers, not with, not with wrath, not with anger and hatred, and not even just with forgiveness, but with a personal and practical affection. When he says, I will provide, the I is emphatic. He's not just saying that I'm going to give you some money so you can go and live your own lives and, and go away from me. No, he's saying, I will care for you and your little ones. I, even I, will care for you. Isn't that just what God says to you and me? It's what God says to his people. I will provide for you. I will care for you and for your little ones. What grace and what mercy. The, the, the wrong, the sin that we have done against God is far worse than anything Joseph experienced. Far worse than anything his brothers did against him. We have offended against the holy, living God. The righteous, just and perfect God. The holy God. And we are justly deserving of his wrath. 
And yet in Christ, it is his grace and his mercy and his love that we receive, though we don't deserve it. What grace there is in God. What love. A couple of thoughts from the New Testament that that echo some of these things. 1 Thessalonians 5. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. 1 Peter 4 verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. And the words of our Lord himself in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 28. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. These are, these are Christ-like attitudes that we would do well to model in our own lives. For Christ, our Saviour, Christ, our Head, he suffered unjustly at the hands of men. He didn't speak or act in his own defence. He left it all in the hands of his Father in heaven. That we might know the grace and the love of God. He endured the cross of suffering and shame. That the good and righteous providence of God might be known in this world. He repaid each sickening blow which came down upon his head with love and forgiveness. And what can we do to repay? There is nothing we can do to repay. There is nothing we can do to earn our place in his family. For he has called us his own. By faith in Jesus Christ we are called his. And for our part we ought to love our enemies as, as we read in, that, in those verses Because we were once loved enemies of God. We ought to love our enemies because we were once loved enemies of God. We had uh, one of our, uh, our psalm setting this morning was from Psalm 56 and expresses Joseph's heart and the heart of Christ for sinners. Listen to these words, verses 10 and 11. In God, I will praise his word. In the Lord, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? God's sovereign plan. Use the evil intents of of human beings. And through those things, through his providence, through his power, God was able to turn that human wickedness to serve his divine purpose. And consequently, it was the will of God throughout. And so Joseph had no right to retaliate. 
and no need to forgive for God does both. There was no need for Joseph's brothers to try and manipulate him into uh, accepting them and forgiving them because they were already forgiven. They were already part of that chosen covenant family for God had brought them in. Some of them he had brought back into the family after they wandered off. Think of Judah who wandered off to have his own family who left the family behind. Of Simeon and Levi who, whose cruelty murdered a, a whole village of people. Or of Reuben who defiled his father's bed. No, God brought them back by his grace into that covenant family. And he brings us by his grace into that same family. That we too might be known as children of Abraham. As we read uh, in that passage in Galatians 3. Joseph's brothers weren't subtle uh, about their deception. They weren't subtle, but their actions were, were based on that insidious belief which too often we share in. That out of our, our law, lawish hearts, out of our hearts which are, which are bound to this world and bound up with the guilt of sin, we find it so hard to believe that God would show grace and mercy to us. We get around this. We deal with these things by knowing the truth. By reading it over and over again in God's words. By reminding ourselves of those words in Galatians 3. Galatians 2 verse 20 where he said, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Reminding ourselves that we are justified by faith. That we are sons and heirs with Christ. Constantly bringing the, the knowledge of these doctrines, these truths, what God has revealed to us, into the forefront of our minds. And that truth overcoming what we believe in, our, what we wrongly believe in our hearts to be the case. But we also overcome it by the experience of the love of Christ. For God has set his Holy Spirit up in the, within the hearts of believers. That we might know the love of Christ. That we might know the love of God. And that through that love we might overcome sin and guilt. Because he has overcome it for us. He has the victory and in him we have the victory. Joseph loved his brothers. He loved them. Why did he love them? How did he love them? After all they'd put him through. Why and how did he possibly love them? Because God loved them. Because God saw fit to bring them into that family. Because God saw fit to redeem them. And what could Joseph do but follow his master? 
we have the same responsibility. We are part of a family. We follow our master. We follow our head, the Lord Jesus Christ. To love one another in the family and even to love our enemies because once upon a time we were God's enemies and he loved us so much that he brought us, adopted us into his family that we might be the children of Abraham, heirs of the promises, heirs of the glory of God. The book of Genesis finishes uh, with verses 22 to 26 and the death of Joseph. It finishes with unfulfilled promises. Now those are usually a bad thing, aren't they? When we think about it in our own context, in our own lives, an unfulfilled promise is usually a promise that has been broken. It usually means that we or, or somebody else has failed to do what they said they would do. And that's because we're fallen, broken, sinful people. That we promise things, we say we're going to do things, and we fail to do it. But when we're thinking about God's promises, God's promises to his people, unfulfilled promises are a wonderful thing. They are a wonderful thing. And that's because we know that God will never, ever, ever, ever leave a promise unfulfilled. So if he's not done it yet, you can be assured that he will. The book of Genesis ends with death. Two deaths, Jacob and Joseph. It's a key theme that, that runs through the book as we... we thought about last week when we were looking at Jacob's death. Uh, throughout the book of, of Genesis, death is a theme. With each generation comes death. Because of the curse. Because of the sin of man. But with each generation that dies, through the whole of Genesis, through the whole of the history that we read there, the promises of God's covenant are passed on. Through Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Now to the sons of Israel. And with each generation, as we've gone through the book, as we've gone through the history, there is a building sense of anticipation to see what God will do. To see how and when and with whom he will fulfill those promises. Jacob's bones were taken up to Canaan to remind Israel of their home. To remind them that Egypt wasn't their home, but Canaan was the land that God had promised. And they, they went up in a great funeral cortege, all the way up to Canaan, to bury Jacob. A reminder of a promised return. And Jacob left those instructions in, in faith in the promises of God. He believed God. And just as Abraham, it was counted to him as righteousness. Joseph gave some slightly different instructions to his family at the end of his life. Rather than taking his bones up to Canaan, they were to keep them. And when God visited them to bring them out of Egypt, 
as he was certain he would, then Joseph would return to Canaan. He waited in Egypt, waiting for the better exodus. And the book of Genesis, like the Old Testament itself, ends by pointing beyond its own story. The story of Genesis ends here with the death of Joseph. Man had travelled far beyond its beginnings in Eden to a coffin. And the chosen family was far from the land of Canaan, far from the land of promise. But Joseph's charge to his family concerning his bones was a gesture of faith. Just as his father's commands were. A faith which would not be disappointed in a promise that would be fulfilled. On, the journey, on that journey to Canaan, when God did visit as he promised he would... Israel carried two boxes through the wilderness and into Canaan. And there's a connection between those two boxes. You see the word coffin in verse 26 is actually exactly the same word that's used to describe the Ark of the Covenant. It's a box. One of these boxes carried a copy of the Ten Commandments, a sign of God's covenant with his people at Sinai. The other box held Joseph's bones, a sign of God's covenant with Abraham concerning the land that they were going to inherit. And while Canaan was the fulfilment of some of God's covenant promises, Israel really never properly settled in that land, did they? If you're familiar at all with the history of the Old Testaments, uh, apart from the, the, uh, the David and Solomon era, it's nothing but trouble and woe, and a battle and a fight to keep hold of that land until ultimately they lose it. But the earthly Canaan is only a type, only a shadow of the heavenly country associated with those promises, associated with the new creation. And the book of Genesis ends with an unfulfilled promise and Joseph's dying words, which epitomise the, the, the hope in which the Old Testament falls into silence. And indeed, the same hope is present at the end of the New Testament. Genesis ends with those words in verse 25, the words of Joseph, God will surely visit you. How does the New Testament end? Revelation 20, Revelation 22, and verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely, 
I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. They looked forward. At the end of Genesis, Joseph and the the children of Israel looked forward to the fulfilment of those promises. And when the Lord Jesus came, those promises were fulfilled in him. The apostles at the end of the New Testament looked forward to the return of Jesus and the consummation of all things. To which the Lord himself replies, surely I am coming quickly. And to which we, his people, respond, amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Amen.